Welcome to Through the Portal, a podcast from the Social Justice Portal Project, a national collaborative think tank hosted by the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Shout out all our folks at UIC. For the last five months, grassroots activists and radical scholars have given voice to community struggles, national strategies, and sustainable alternatives for the future. The guest speakers, who are also Portal Project participants, explore what it means to walk through the portal of the current moment by centering racial and social justice issues. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Damon. And I'm Teresa. And today's guest is Leah Penniman. Leah is the co-director and farm manager of Soul Fire Farm and has over 20 years of experience as a soul steward and food sovereignty activist. Founded in 2010, Soul Fire Farm works to reclaim our inherent rights to belong to the earth and have agency in the food system as black and brown people. I know that's right. Her areas of leadership at Soul Fire include farmer training, international solidarity, perennials, writing, speaking, making it rain, and anything that involves heavy lifting, sweat, and soil. Leah's book's Farming While Black is a love song for the earth and her peoples. So let's go through the portal with Leah Penniman. Coming through the portal, coming through the portal, coming through the, coming through the, coming through the portal. All right, we are here. We are back. We are going through the portal. And as always, we are excited. But I, I want to say I'm, I'm super excited for this conversation. Here with us, we have a co-founder of Soul Fire Farm and the author of Farming While Black, the amazing, phenomenal Leah Penniman is with us. Bruh, 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 bruh. All right, Leah. <laughs> welcome. Thanks, family. That's very kind yes, of you. It's an welcome. honor to be here with you. Welcome, welcome, welcome into the portal. Um, In our tradition, we have a two-part question to warm us up and get us going, and it is centered around time. Uh, So in this time, whether you define that as this hour, this day, this season, or this lifetime, in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Hmm. That's such a powerful question. So how is the world treating me? I feel abundantly blessed. And that is not to say that I'm not hyper aware of the multiplicitous challenges that are facing our communities and the sacred earth herself. But, you know, yesterday it rains so hard for the first time all season. And we're recovering from this powerful and impactful drought. And I was actually able, despite being cold and wet, to embody the blessing all day long of that nourishing rain. And so you know, and every day brings that. Every day brings the abundance of soil, the abundance of community, the abundance of sacred and meaningful work, the abundance of of food and medicine coming from the land. Um, so the earth is treating me very, very well. Um, how am I treating the earth? You're going to have to ask her. You know, I can't be presumptuous and assume that the things that I think I do to honor the earth as sacred mother, as elder sibling, are landing as such. But it certainly is my intention. Uh, to walk with a gentle reciprocity and to inhabit that unpayable debt that each of us carries from birth to that which made and nourished us. So thank you for that question. So how do you think the work that you're doing uh, does contribute to Mother Earth? Hmm. Okay, we'll step back a little bit. So at Soul Fire Farm, right, we are a group of Afro-Indigenous-centered land stewards and community stewards that are working to uproot racism and seed sovereignty in the food system. So, you know, in short, we grow a lot of food. We we take care of the soil. We educate black and brown farmers. We rabble rouse for systems change and workers' rights and climate policy and all of these things. 
how particularly do I think we honor the earth? Something that is really impacting me right now and resonating with me is about our ancestral practices as farmers and how they can tangibly bring carbon into the soil, right? So a little bit of context about that is that European colonizer methods of farming within just one generation of settler colonialism here on Turtle Island, also known as North America, they had destroyed 50% of the carbon in the soil by plowing and tilling. And that was the beginning of anthropogenic climate change. Even before industrial revolution impacted the CO2 in the atmosphere, it was this land use impact that created the first spike of CO2 that we can see uh, created by human beings. One of my, my co-workers, former farm manager at Soulfire, says the work of being a regenerative farmer is to call the carbon, the life, back into the soil. I mean, there's everything in that, right? Because we've been able in the 15 years we've been on this land to actually put the carbon back to pre-colonial levels. And that is through the ways our ancestors have always farmed, the cover crops, the permanent raised beds, the polycultures, the ancestral seeds. And I'm sure we'll dive more into what I mean by that. You know, last week we had this soil farmer, soil scientist out here, Tiffany Lachey, who's a dope black soil scientist and farmer and researcher. And she took a soil core of our um, land and you could literally see a foot of black soil that we had built during the time that we had been here. And you could read the history of the soil over time and how it had been impacted. So, so that's the work. Humans can make the earth better where we stand. We don't have to be a cancer on the earth, right? In a very tangible and readable way. That's beautiful. Is like the, the earth as a, as a record keeper of impact and of the work and, you know, of obviously the harm and destruction, but that it also can bear witness or reflect back the beneficial nurturing that our stewardship can bring. So I, I kind of want to use that notion of like a, the earth as a record keeper, almost like a original clock, right? Like a, a, of tracking and keeping time. I, I want to invite you to chart the mission and vision if we want to use those like very grant-centered language, but but the, the consciousness of the space over the time of your work there, right? Because if I'm not mistaken, the farm started in 2010, right? For th- folks who haven't caught on, this portal conversation is in conversation with the Earn Daddy Roy quote that this pandemic has been a portal and seen new possibilities. So um, since you guys have started, there's been the emergence of a movement in the middle of the decade that I think has probably reinformed the consciousness of the space. And then over these last two years, obviously all of our ecosystems have been shifting as global health and destruction is coming to the forefront in different ways. So that was a long way to ask, like, how did y'all see the work when you started? How does that change? Has movement popped up? And then how has that change accelerated or shifted in these last two years or so? Oh, okay. So let me see if I can do this with like three stories, one from each of those periods in time, because it'd be boring to just give you all a timeline. You can read (laughs) stuff, you know. Okay. So let's go back to 2005. My partner, Jonah, and I are living in the south end of Albany, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid. Food apartheid is not a food desert. It's not natural. It's an insidious human-created system of segregation that makes certain neighborhoods have McDonald's and other neighborhoods have Whole Foods, right? And so we were in a neighborhood where there's no supermarket, no farmer's market, no land to farm, no bus line to get you to the supermarket. And we had a newborn and a two-year-old. The only way to get fresh vegetables was to pay an exorbitant amount of money to join a farm share, right? And then to walk over two miles to go pick up that farm share. So when our neighbors found out that 
we had farming experience, they started peer pressuring us almost like an ongoing joke to start a farm that would feed the people. And we'd had a vague dream, but this solidified for us the need to wet ourselves to some land and to go ahead and start this farm we'd always talked about. You know, long story short, sign the papers. We had vacant land. So we had to build everything. I mean, everything, the soil, the house, the driveway, the septic, the electric, the internet, like all the things that took until 2010 when we opened the farm. That was a five-year process. Exactly. Exactly. And so I would say that was the initial impetus, you know, to answer that question. You know, we we opened the farm. We're still working outside jobs. The kids are young, you know, doing all the things, but we are feeding our South End community with a weekly doorstep delivery of vegetables and eggs. We do that for a few years. So you say the emergence of movement. I'm assuming you're talking about movement for Black Lives. You know, shout out to my, my siblings, Patrice and, and others who helped get that going in this iteration. But of course, that is a a new iteration of a very old movement. We've been fighting for our lives for generations. And so around that same time, one of my elders, who's now in, in blessed memory, uh, Baba Curtis Muhammad, had come to visit. And he was a Black Panther civil rights movement person, complex person, but you know, lots to learn from him. And, and he was telling us how Black farmers were the backbone of the civil rights movement. You know, literally, there would be no civil rights movement without the Black farmer, because you couldn't go down for Freedom Summer and like stay in some hotel they weren't going to serve you at a restaurant. You know, it was like the black farmers who provided the accommodations, the organizing space, the armed defense of the organizers so that they could do their thing. And so he said, what are y'all doing on your farm? You grow carrots and give them to people. That's cute. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what else are you doing for the movement? And that's when we joined the Freedom Food Alliance, which does a lot of things, but in short, bringing food to prisons, doing uh, political education about mass incarceration running restorative justice programs, diversion programs for youth to keep them out of lockup, you know, working on various things on the intersection of where like food and mass incarceration and state violence need to be addressed. We were doing some certificate programs in prison for folks who wanted to farm. And that's when things really expanded for us because we were, we were doing that organizing, but we were also training farmers. We're also getting involved in politics trying to make, make things right for those who care for the earth and for those who need to eat. You know, my daughter, Nishima, who's now grown, she was a baby in the beginning of the story. She always says, mom, the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plates. That's cool. But we got to infuse like justice and democracy and love into all of those steps along the way. So to fast forward to the very end, the past couple of years, the pandemic, the uprisings, I would say if anything the pandemic has re-fortified and re-strengthened our commitment to our work. Farming is really hard. Social justice work is really hard. I have worked a lot of different jobs, so I can say that, and it is easier to do other things. And so what keeps us going is a sense that it matters what we're doing. And I think, you know, the pandemic hit and anyone who didn't care about food and land before, they suddenly cared a whole lot. You know, and upright people didn't care about Black folks suddenly realizing that racial justice needs to be addressed. And so that was fortifying. And to have my own grown children who were ambivalent about the life choices we make go full 180 and just dedicate themselves to the mission work of Soul Fire Farm. Be, they're feeding the community. They're out building gardens. They're bringing their friends to move in with us. That was key. And it really helped us mature into the stage we are now as a teenage organization ourselves where we're doing a lot more on the regional and national scale. We run a national fellowship that provides like 10 farmers a year with a salary and a mentor so they can get their business off the ground. I'm like testifying before the Senate next week on nutrition things. So, you know, it, it really helps us to solidify the import of, of the work. So there you go. 15 years and one minute. <laughs> what an amazing arc. 
what you offer, not only, you know, in that telling of your work, but in your work at large, um, I think can really help us literally ground ourselves in the work. So as somebody who I think was most activated and mobilized in addressing anti-carceral violence and, you know, starting to like carry and wave this flag of abolition, which was the topic of our first episode, more and more in my media work and in, you know, work in community have learned and felt more and more provoked that all revolution is obviously land-based. All people's struggles have to be connected to a space. Food, water, oxygen, and soil are like the fundamental elements to survival, regardless on how we are addressing oppressive systems, but especially if we plan to supplant them, you know, resist them, transform our reality around them. And so I want to like just ask that question of how you, as a facilitator and educator, make that idea simple for people, that all abolitionist work should be grounded in an environmental justice or if you want to call it climate or land-based approach to the work. How how do you teach people that concept? Mm, I love that. I will say I usually don't try to convince people of things. We just hang out on the land and stuff <laughs> unfold. But, um, or how has that unfolded then? Maybe that lesson has emerged. <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing, right? I'm a historical nerd, right? So it. if you look back at the history of Black folks, there has always been a consistent and compelling yearning for land. I mean, you look at 1865 when Reverend Garrison Frazier was meeting with the Union Army to, to talk about the Black community's desires for reconstruction. And the thesis statement of their whole proposal was, and I quote, what we need are homes and the ground beneath them so that we can plant fruit trees and say to our children, these are yours. That has been the yearning of the Black community for our entire existence. Malcolm X talks about all revolution is based on land, right? You talk about the Federation of Black Cooperatives, one of our oldest institutions, talks about all wealth comes from the land. And it's logically indisputable. Here's the thing. I'll tell you a little, another little story. So Fannie Lou Hamer, who is like the mom of the revolution, right? Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, all kinds of things going on. She had cans of food that she had grown and can lining her house. And when the organizers she was training would come over, they would ask her like, oh, why are you wasting time with this food and all this stuff? And she said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to say or do. And then she explained by contrast, as soon as they take away your food, and they can because they control the food system, we saw this in the Greenwood food blockade of, of the 1960s, right, where, where civil rights activity was punished by food blockades. You will go crawling on your knees through the dust, put down your voter registration paper, your NAACP paper in order to feed your children. You will do that because hunger will make you do that. So until you have control over the means of production, your land, your home, your food, your burial ground, you know, you are forever at the mercy of those who are interested in you only insofar as you provide a profit. There will never be true freedom until we we have control over some modicum of the means of production. You know, it's a logical fallacy to think otherwise. How are you going to rely on like Google and Sodexo to take care of you? Like what are you talking about? <laughs> we have to we have to have our own institutions. And land is is the only real thing. Everything else is in the ether. I'm thinking now about like legibility or visibility, right? Maybe sloppily making this parallel between carceral systems and carceral violence and food systems and environmental violence. There's a way in the the public consciousness, our movement is changing this, but like 
you know, prisons and jails and even what police do is like out of their viewpoint and like struggle to even see it to then recognize it as something we need to resist and challenge. And I think our food systems are very similar to that. Like they are taken for granted as something that it just is. They've become very normative and just like what happens in production of the things we're putting in our bodies and putting into the air is just, you know, even for someone who's interested in it can so easily be out of my purview or, or go invisible. Um, and so from the land, right? Like how does that visibility or that legibility become more concrete? Like you say of like, I'm not out here trying to teach or convince folks. I just out here to have conversations. Like what are you learning from those conversations about how people need to understand about the harm and oppression embedded in our food production? Oh, yeah. First of all, the history of industrial agriculture and the history of the carceral state are the same. Mm. The first police in this country were slave patrols. And then those slave patrols in Virginia were nationalized with the fugitive slave law to become a national police force, right? You can talk about chattel slavery as the first mass incarceration, but even if you don't buy that metaphor, you can look at 1865 when there was so-called freedom with the 13th Amendment and its handy little loophole that Mm -hmm. made uh, being convicted of a crime, you're still eligible for enslavement. And then the the Black Codes came on. And the Black Codes were a series of laws that made it illegal to be a vagrant. That means to not have a job, specifically a year-long contract on a farm. Um, to be loitering, that means just hanging around, <laughs> doing what you're doing. Or to not be upright and honest. And the punishment for those was, one, you would be incarcerated and then leased back to the plantation or the mines or the railroads. But also it was the beginning of the um, social service state where your children could be taken away to be apprenticed to someone more upright, namely the former masters. And so the prison population doubled, tripled in some states. Um, Alabama relied on renting out black convicts for 78% of their state budget um, during that period of time. And folks were in neo-slavery conditions, but they were rented quote unquote property versus purchase. So there was actually less incentive to keep them alive and the death rates were much higher. And that system continues to this day. It's a $40 billion industry to lease out prisoners to the private sector. It's a mistake to think these issues are not intertwined because fundamentally, as soon as you dehumanize the Black body, it becomes possible and logically coherent to do these type of oppressive acts. And as soon as you think about the earth and the land and the soil as something other than a sibling, a relative, it becomes possible to see it for extraction, for profit, um, for for utter destruction in the name of the bottom line. And so I think it's the same heteropatriarchal, settler, colonial capitalist mentality that underlines these these oppressions and that fundamentally we're not going to be able to get at either of them without getting at this misguided philosophy in terms of, of how we understand our relatedness to one another. It resonates with something that rings true to me of like the logic and the practice of how humans have harmed human beings or other you know life forms is rooted in the domination of the land right like it is that same practice of i control and determine the outcome of the life of an ecosystem of a person of a community is all embedded i feel like ending with the land allows us to have such an intersectional conversation that i want to kind of keep going through the themes that connects your work to some of the stuff we talked about. So in addition to, I think, the land being a way for us to understand how our oppression is working, 
it is obviously a place for us to practice our liberation. And so when you mentioned your daughter, you know, you named like sunlight on a plate, but then you also added a few things to that equation of, of justice and democracy. Um, and so I'm wondering whether it's in thinking about how to distribute food, whether to bring them to market versus a more mutual aid approach, working in co-ops, like how does the, the practice of starting with the production from sun to soil how has that allowed you and your community to practice notions of solidarity and democracy, whether that's in a formal enterprise or just in how y'all are organizing with each other? Oh, I love that. So solidarity and democracy based on land. So let me talk about this in sort of a concrete way, but also in a psycho-spiritual way, because I think both are really important when we talk about liberation. Hell yeah. So, um, and first of all, I got to shout out one of my mentors, Dr. Gail Myers, who just came out with a beautiful documentary, Rhythms of the Lands, about the history of Black farming. And there is a segment that brought me to tears on this, where she's she's interviewing 90 to 100-year-old elders who are one generation away from slavery. And they talk about the economic model in the communities growing up. It was absolutely a gift economy. There was no money exchange. She talks about, you know, you come home from church or whatever, and there'd be baskets of food just on your deck because someone had extra peaches or this and the That's aspirational. I will say what we have concrete experience with at Soul Fire Farm is one uh, building off of Booker T. Watley, who's a, a black farmer and entrepreneur out of Tuskegee University, mid-1900s Alabama, who came up with the farm-to-table concept, including community-supported agriculture, or CSA. So that's the idea that the community members can actually be, be members of a farm and get discounted prices on food and be part of the farming community. So we've modified that to be sliding scale. So community members who can't pay don't pay, those who can chip in more, chip in more. And that's how we distribute food through this cooperative economics model. So that, that's one concrete ways it shows up. Also through shared land ownership, we have cooperative ownership of the lands. We give the lawyers a run for their their um, pro bono fee because <laughs> we needed the rights of nature put in there. Nature has a veto power over all the humans. Mm, pause right there. Is there any <laughs> story of nature sitting in the circle and, and raising a veto? Absolutely. How, how does nature veto? <laughs> well, first of all, we got to look. There's models for this. So in New Zealand, um, there's a river that has personhood. Under the national law, if you look at um, Ojibwe custodians of their manumen rice, rice is a person in the community. So one of the issues is that we have personhood for corporations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't have personhood for non-human beings. So we just have mm -hmm. to apply personhood where it belongs. That's, that's simple. But um, how it works in practicality is that we use our West African Orisha divination tools mm -hmm. to ask the earth for permission to do things. And if she says no, then that's what it is. We also have a cultural respect agreement with the Mohican nation. We're on Mohican lands. We have an agreement where they can use the land in perpetuity. Um, so that's a really important piece. There's lots of examples, but I'll say another one on sort of the concrete side of things is the cooperative labor. You know, we work obviously towards fair wages and working conditions for our employees, but we also do cooperative mutual aid where we have combi, like Haitian work parties. And we also attend the combi, the work parties of of other black owned farms um, in the region. And that's a, a no money exchange, like everybody kick in, have a good time. On the psycho spiritual side of things, when we talk about freedom on the land, you know, I, I've mentioned this in passing, but I can't say deeply enough that in West African indigenous cosmology, the earth is not a resource. The earth is not an environment. The earth is not a setting. The earth is a relative. And we humans aren't in charge. We are the younger siblings of creation. 
who owe deference to our older siblings, the mountains, the hawks, the bears, the marigolds. They were here first. They know more, right? We ask them. And that has huge and massive implications. It means we ask permission before we we do stuff to the land. It means we make offerings. It means we have festival and ceremony and honoring the earth cycles. It means that we infuse a sense of gratitude and humility in everything we do. It means that we take with moderation. That is very, very powerful. I will say that thousands of folks have been coming through our programs over the years. And, you know, I'm a sci- I have a science background. So I always hope at the end, the thing they'll remember is like my amazing soil chemistry lectures. But, <laughs> but it's not. It's almost universally about the sense of freedom and wholeness that comes with having a restored connection to land that is culturally relevant, that is safe, and that is of their own volition. I mean, people are like, I put down the bottle. I left the toxic marriage. I ended the dead end job. I'm finally following my dreams. I finally have a sense of what's possible. It's like the the field of vision goes from narrow to wide, you know. And I think I don't take credit for that personally, nor do I think my amazing teammates can take credit. I think the land has been yearning for her children to come home. And as soon as those bare feet touch the earth, she's got all these messages to upload. You know, all this belonging and welcome home to upload and folks are getting to experience that and experience the freedom of that. Mm. You know, I think this whole cosmology, this whole way of thinking about our relationship to the earth is so important because so much of the climate injustice, right? So much of the pending climate catastrophe is the result um, of our lack of respect. It is the underlying framework that will help us reverse the damage. I mean, you know, I'm in the farming and food sphere, so that's what I think about is within our own power. But, you know, I mentioned some of these agricultural practices, which are rooted in this cosmology. So we do things like cover crops, no-till, perennial polycultures, heavy mulches, the use of African dark earth compost, right? And these practices not only sequester carbon, which is our contribution to the long game, but they actually help mitigate immediate impacts. And this is something we don't talk honestly enough about because the floods are happening now, the droughts are happening now, the fires are happening now, and they're disproportionately impacting communities of color, poor communities, vulnerable communities. What are we doing about that right now? And something we noticed almost by accident, we had a major flood a few years ago and all the farms around us lost their topsoil. It was very devastating and not something to be celebrated in any way. And we're using an Ovambo style raised bed, a West African style raised bed that slowed the water down and allowed the water to infiltrate and we didn't have any erosion of our soil. We could carry on, right? And so it's important to talk about these practices that long game help us stabilize the climate, but we also need to talk about mitigation and how do, how do we build resiliency, especially for those who are most likely to be impacted. And sometimes it's the same strategy. So that, that's nice when that works out. In the Chicago context, we've got a lot of old industrial sites um, and a lot of uh, contamination that was left behind. One of the things that you know we think about when we are looking at these sites is how many materials that are left to leach into the soil, and then from there into the into the groundwater. So, even some of the practices you're talking about, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how some of those practices can help mitigate even some of that soil. It's such a good question. And this is really personal and close to home. So um, my daughter, who's grown now, who apparently I like to talk about today, but when she was a baby, she actually got lead poisoning from soils in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was really not on the radar of the officials how contaminated the soils were. So, you know, like a good mom, of course, I did all the things to take care of my baby and also did not want other people's children 
to have that same impact. And so, you know, long story short, did some organizing, some testing, basically found out that this contamination problem was ubiquitous all across Worcester. The EPA sets the quote safe limit somewhere between 200, 400 parts per million of lead, but we were finding 11,000 parts per million of lead, which is a super fun site just out in the community, right? And so what we did is studied what were the ways to remediate these soils. We formed a youth co-op called the Toxic Soil Busters. They had a van that was like a ghost buster, but it was soil, it was cute. They had the hazmat suit, but they went out and did some phytoremediation. Um, And I have to put an asterisk here because phytoremediation is something you really need to be trained to do. You can cause more harm than good if you attempt to do it without someone who knows what they're doing. So that's the like public health warning, but it is possible to uh, accumulate some of these stable heavy metals into certain plants through a process of chelation and then to remove those plants to a hazardous waste dump that's properly lined so it doesn't get into the groundwater and like rinse and repeat. For most places though, sealing and capping is like the best that folks can do because unless you can get those companies to come in and do a proper cleanup and that's that's pretty devastating. Um, but not all chemicals are mobile. And only a few are biodegradable. They have to be carbon-based. So like your petroleums and things. And when people talk about the mushroom remediation, it's not for elements. It's for those carbon-based compounds, which may or may not be your biggest issue. But it does start with, with getting the soil tested, seeing what you're dealing with, and then, you know, and then making sure you have a knowledgeable person on your team so that everyone stays safe during the cleanup process. When you had that horrible experience with your daughter, where were you in the work? Were you already activated or did that personal experience? Oh, friend. (laughs) I'm laughing because so both my parents are civil rights activists. I have a picture of myself at four years old with this little crayon (laughs) sign that says like, we want peace, stop the war, like marching with my mom, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're a movement baby. (laughs) We were were activated. (laughs) Okay. I I was just interested because working on another project that's talking about the legacy of the modern EJ movement and talk about the story of Hazel Johnson here in Chicago and just how much like communal stewardship, motherhood, just seeing what happens to your loved ones, to your neighbors has built so much movement activity has has created these lifelong commitments and legacies. Um, So that's where where the curiosity stems from. Well, thank you for honoring Mama Hazel Johnson. She is truly the mother of the movement. I have a new book coming out called Black Earth Wisdom. And there's an opening essay that honors the progenitors, the founders of the movement. So I included something about her and um, just love her work and love what that whole community is doing. Ashe. So with that kind of as a prompt, I, I want to talk about like legacy and the transmission of practices and ideas because you have named many times ancient indigenous practices. You've talked about, you know, building flower beds and West African practices. You've also talked about these ancient cosmological spiritual traditions, right? So there's been a, a passing down of knowledge. And then I know you guys also do your immersion programs and, and train folks on the land. So there is a, a passing on of these now. So I, I just want you to like dig deeper in the practice of transmission where and how were some of the ways you got some of these ancient, forgotten, underappreciated practices and traditions, and what is being developed as you are working to further disseminate, reproduce, or pass on this information? Oh, I love that through line. So here's the thing. I'm astounded, really. I shouldn't be, but I'm absolutely astounded that it took me until 
pretty recently, you know, I'm not young, <laughs> pretty recently to understand that Black people had anything to do with sustainable agriculture, climate solution. You know, I majored in environmental science. I've been to every farming conference in the Northeast. Nobody talks about Black and Indigenous contribution. There's a complete erasure. I started farming when I was 16. I would go to these conferences. It was all white men talking, occasionally white women talking, all cis folks, straight folks. You know, so I really thought that I walked into the wrong room, you know, when I was trying to do this environmental stuff. And it wasn't until my mentor, um, Mama Karen Washington, who's the founder of Black Urban Growers, Rising Root Farm. She's wonderful. Look her up if you don't know Mama Karen. She took me under her wing and she was like, there's more than you're seeing here. Like, and one day we'll have our own book about it and our own conference about it, you know, but for now, like hang in there. And of course, when I wrote Farming While Black, you know, Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you needed to read that hadn't been written, go and write it. And so it started with a hypothesis that Black people absolutely contributed to pretty much everything that Full we Full stop, sell. everything. And like, and just, yeah, you know, ag is my sphere. But yeah, everything, right? As do all Indigenous communities. Yes. I'm not saying anything. East Asians do everybody. But as soon as I scratched a little bit into the anthropological literature, it was there. I was like, search, Africa, compost, search. <laughs> rotational grazing, Africa, you know, and, and it, it's there, it's there. It just hasn't been uplifted. Um, so a lot of it came from research. Um, some of it came from direct experience. I've, I've lived for um, several months at a time um, in Ghana, West Africa, in Haiti, in the Caribbean, um, spent some time with indigenous communities in Oaxaca, Mexico, and in the Sierra Norte, uh, and did a lot of intercambio, a lot of like exchange of ideas and knowledge. Um, so some of it is from that, but a lot of it is honestly just like research and compilation. And the pass it forward, similarly, learning that it is so crucial and important for the rising generation of Black farmers to understand that they're not adopting a white path in growing food and medicine for their community. They are continuing a proud legacy that has much more to it than the slavery story that we've told. That history is essential for people to feel at home on the land again. Many of us are skilled educators from in the classroom and out. And so we just create these workshop experiences, like for example, to learn the timeline of black agrarian history. We do a New Orleans style funeral where we go around and read little obituaries, quote unquote, of the oppression that's taken place on land. Everything from uh, the white citizens council trying to take away black owned land to the USDA discrimination. We do a ritual burning and dancing around that. And then we we move to celebrating the proud history using a call and response rhythm game. And then we build the future, adding on to what our ancestors have already contributed. And like by the end of that night, we know so much about our history, the, the, the hardships as well as the triumphs, but we don't just know it, we've felt it, we've lived it, we've embodied it. And so that's part of the immersion experience is like, yes, we teach you like how to plant carrots, but we're also really trying to contextualize the work we're doing in this long arc of justice that we're all a part of. I feel like carrots have taken two strays in this conversation. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, you trying to plant tomatoes, okay. collard greens, okra. <laughs> Gonna go have lunch after. Yeah. Carrots have been the butt of the chip. <laughs> Poor carrots. I really like carrots, yeah. actually. Yeah, I'm curious about the organizational structure. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's always, that's the real deal. Like, but how does it work? Okay, so there's two entities. Since we're talking about corporate personhood, there are two corporate people involved. So one is um, the co-op, which owns the land. So everyone who lives here on the land, we have seven adults and five children who live here on the land is a member owner. 
And the nonprofit is also a, a member owner and tenant, so to speak, of the of the land. Uh, and then the Mohican Nation has um, some decision-making power and nature has some decision-making power. So, you know, co-op's a co-op. We have some of our own twists on it, but essentially it works like any co-op works. And then the nonprofit organization, you know, has a board of directors. We select our board based on the community to more accountable versus um, like a fundraising board or who's who kind of board. So it's, it's farmers and community organizers that are our board of directors. We have a co ED model where we always have two or three folks in, in senior leadership, but all of our decisions are substantially collaborative when it makes sense to do so. Not everyone needs to be involved in every decision, but you know, you know what I mean? And then there are 14 employees, about half are full-time, half are part-time. We are food justice certified. So that means that we are inspected and affirmed to like pay a living wage and have fair benefits and grievance policies and transparency and in an industry that is is notorious for being really horrible to its workers, farming and, and farm workers trying to do right. And uh, what can I say? The nonprofit was born in 2016. So we're still pretty young with that structure. And it's been a challenge to adapt it to our values. But I'm proud of our team uh, for, for doing that with integrity. And the co-op is, is even newer than that. So prior to that, we were a family farm. Hmm. Your comment is interesting about trying to constantly mesh the values that you have with the structure of the nonprofit, for example. And, you know, and I assume that has to do with, you know, let's say state incorporation laws or. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're pointing at is really important. And we often kind of joke, not joke about it, that we're always trying to take our indigenous understanding and adapt it to white man's law. And this happens in a lot of ways. I mean, it happens certainly with the co-op. We're trying to do all this stuff with rights of nature and native folks and like, communal land holding. And there is not a structure in European law that understands that. So you're kind of taking a little bit from land trusts, a little bit from co-ops, a little bit from easements, making a suit, trying to make it work, trying to find a lawyer who is patient, you know, so as a intellectual, I kind of enjoy the nerdy puzzle of it, but it is, there is a tragedy to it as well. Um, And in nonprofits, the structure is set up toward mistrust. Mm. The assumption is that people will commit fraud the assumption is that people will um, commit nepotism, do all kinds of nefarious things. And so the structures you have to put in place, which are quite rigid and bureaucratic, are to guard against the assumption of acting in self-interest. And so that's been a big thing for us to adapt to. I'll be concrete about it. Black and brown folks, maybe indigenous folks worldwide, tend to organize by kinship. It makes absolute logical sense to have your auntie be on your board, to have your kid mow the grass to have your best friend help with your fundraising, right? But that's all considered. And I understand why, you know, conflict of interest and you have to have degrees of separation. You have to have a disinterested board. And so trying to, and and one could argue, maybe cynically, maybe not, that they set up nonprofit structure to break up grassroots organizing along its kinship lines. There's a high degree of surveillance I mean, everything is scrutinized. Your audit, every single transaction is scrutinized, right? And so there's a way that you're not going to get away doing anything that the government does not want you to be doing, or you lose your C3 status, you lose your, you know, your funding and so on. So all that to say, you know, we, we comply, we're very good about complying, but it's something we've had to navigate. And there's been heartbreak, like to say to my mom, like, yeah, you really can't be on our board because you can't supervise your children, you know, like, but we appreciate you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I've never heard it named like that and that's so accurate and so it rings so true and it feels like almost like the panopticon like for those who are familiar like the 
the the prison tower that can see all the folks who are incarcerated. So then it creates this psychological effect of all of my behavior and action is being watched in a way that then disempowers or reduces my agency and my behavior. Um, right. It creates a sort of self-monitoring and hypervigilance that can interrupt the way that you might otherwise. Yeah, and then how move. you evaluate your quote unquote comrades or your your partners, right? Like we we now all have to prism ourselves through this structure of distrust and are trying to build land trust based off distrust, right? That that is so um prescient and, and something that, that's definitely gonna sit with me. And so kind of using that of like you, you name European law, I kind of parallel that to your experience and getting in the environmental space of you're in these white conferences with these cis white folks from the global north who are dominating the space. As now in the popular realm, the conversation of climate change and even environmental racism is coming a little bit more to the forefront. How are you seeing continuations in that like pattern of colonial dominance? And then where are you seeing the shifts and transformations, particularly as the notion of catastrophe is being experienced, but also being realized by the broader public in deeper ways? Do you feel like that's continuing or moving and or both? Oh, probably both. I mean, I don't think I have a sophisticated movement analysis. It's all anecdotal, but I will say- We'll take, we take anecdotes here. We, we love an anecdote. Yeah, certainly from the <laughs> 90s when, you know, I've been a, a diehard environmental activist, maybe even a little too preachy since I was quite young. And a big part of that was actually rooted in my own experiences of, of racial injustice. We went to school in an all-white school district and the torturous racialized bullying was really something our three brown siblings, you know, we spent a lot of time in the forest. That was our comfort. That was our safe haven and quickly became a place that we understood needed defense. So we got engaged with environmental activism from a safe haven perspective from childhood. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember making my donations to like Greenpeace or whatever. <laughs> it's like Those are the totally white dominated spaces. I think the major environmental organizations are still in the the stage of waking up to an image problem without a full understanding. So for example, Nature Conservancy got into this whole battle with the black community in Pembroke, Illinois about this reserve. And they're trying to keep the black folks out. The black folks have been farming there forever and want to be partners in the conservation. And then this is like a whole, a whole mess. Um, and you see these sort of token conferences coming up, like the Black Birders Week or this or that, but they have a long, long way to go. But I think what encourages me most is seeing a lot more grassroots organizing, claiming its space. You know, certainly in 1991, we have that kind of inaugural EJ conference. But since then, you have intersectional environmentalists popping up. You have the Joy Trip Project popping up. You have Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson's Ocean Collective work popping up and more and more. So I'm seeing a lot more of our folks taking space. And not necessarily continuing to knock on the door of like World Wildlife or Sierra Club and saying like, let me in and let me have a seat at the table. But like, we're making our own table. And that's really encouraging. Like when I wrote Farming While Black, you know, you could fit books like that. We, we didn't, we couldn't even take a little bookshelf, you know, but I think books that center Black nature and Black environmentalism, we have like a couple bookshelves. Hey. So that's, that's a little bit how I gauge it. You know, I like we're getting, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Dewey Decimal Auditing. <laughs> How many books can I find? Um, and I actually, they're they're all here. You got any you want to shout out in addition to your own? For folks who've read Farming While Black or will read Farming While Black, what, what are some texts that pair well? I, I'm still tripping on your reference to Dewey Decimal System. 
<laughs> well, I'm cheating a little because I have the books right here because before writing Black Earth Wisdom, I tried to purchase every title I could find on a related theme and at least skim through it. So I, you know, because that's what you do. I mean, check out Black Earth Wisdom. It comes out next year with Amistad Har- Harper Collins. I think other books to read, um, All We Can Save, co-edited by Catherine Wilkerson and Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Uh, Michelle Ely's Work in the Roots is outstanding. Uh, Monica White, uh, Freedom Farmers about cooperative economics. Ooh. Oh, there's so many. Uh, Black Nature is great if you want like a poetry, literary side of philosophical side of things. I don't know. I'll throw, I'll throw y'all a whole list for your yeah, show. No, that's, that's a good reading list. That, you know, it's going to take folks a few months to get through that. Start with that, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. Um, what, what do you think in the, in the coming months and years, I mean, holding, holding ground, doing more of the same? Um, do you all have thoughts about what next or, or what you're prioritizing or what you're not going to do anymore? Or, mm-hmm. um, any, any thoughts along those lines? Well, I actually love you say what you're not doing because we've been in a very divergent phase of growth, meaning, you know, people ask us to do stuff and we just add it on and we're converging on our lane. Um, so we're in the middle of strategic thinking together with our partners around what's our collective North Star and how are we each working towards that? I will say the thing that most excites me about what's coming up is we've been building buildings here on this land for almost 15 years and we're almost done uh, building out our campus so that there'll be a place for people to sleep, cook, eat. You know, and and that's not small. I mean, we've been intense for most of the time that we are here. And what we are doing is we're creating a legacy campus like Highlander Center, where our great grandchildren can come to learn about farming, about rural land-based living, about wilderness, all carbon neutral, all the things. So it's huge. So maybe I'll leave it at that. We got a lot of other stuff going on, but we try to be responsive to, you know, what our community is needing. We'll always be centering uh, the growing of food and medicine and the care of the lands, but that'll take a lot of iterations over the generations, I'm sure, depending on what is needed. That that leads us perfectly into our close. Um, and just to like retouch on the theme of the seismic shifts that have been happening a la the pandemic, but so many other related and separate entities have created this portal that those of us who are committed to transformation want to maximize the opportunity for change in this time. And so this has been such a great culmination to our series because in this, not only have we talked about the earth and agriculture and climate and environment, but you've also threaded us back to notions of abolition, of global connectedness, of solidarity economy. And so from where you sit, if people take serious this opportunity or this time and walk through this portal of transformation and digest, process, and reproduce the themes that we've talked about and that your work embodies, what is more possible in our world if people go through that portal? Mm -mm -mm. It's really, for me, the portal is about embodying this sacred biomimicry where we're not seeing the human mind as the ultimate authority and instead are leaning back into the primary sources of knowledge the earth, the stars, the wind, the fungi. And if we can learn to listen again, to stop talking and actually listen again, what becomes possible is to re-enter the sacred web of creation that we were originally designed to be a part and to get to continue to live here on this earth. Ashe, Ashe. Ashe. So thank you so much for your time and your contribution and your brilliance and your work and your community. I've never been up there, but I feel 
Move You're invited. You're both invited. It. No, I plan on I plan on making the trip. Uh, I've gotten the invite before, and I definitely want to take y'all up on that. So, one, I just want to offer a thank you and an appreciation uh, humbly to to what you've contributed to our people. Um, and then, with that, is there anything? You got the new book coming out. Is there anything else that you want to have folks look for? Or where can folks find you and your work in the way that you want to be found? Well, thank you. So check us out online, soulfirefarm.org, or on all the grams and soulfirefarm, all one word. And, and definitely check out the reparations map. It's essential that those most impacted by the climate crisis are the ones who get to be in leadership with the solutions. And on the reparations map, you can find a project near you that's black and brown led, that's working on regenerative everything and support them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leah. This has really been fabulous. Thank you. Thanks to Leah for that wonderful conversation. And thanks to you, Teresa, and our producer, Daniel, and everybody at SJI and the Portal Project at large. This has really been a gift, not only having these conversations that we've been able to share with you, the world, but also feel really honored to be a part of the community of, of movement thinkers, activists, organizers, educators who came together and was a little bit vulnerable with each other to talk about these big world-changing ideas. The legacy of this connection will live beyond this podcast and beyond the space that we share together. It's been an honor. Yeah, right on. And thanks, Daniel and Damon. You all are real pros. And big, huge shout out again to the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Orale, let's let's keep on keeping on. Ashe. And also feel free to catch our other podcast, Ergo, uh, where we have conversations that, if you like this, flow right in line. Um, if you've been a fan of the Portal Project, you should go ahead and check out Ergo and add that to your feeds. Feel free to like and subscribe everywhere you get your podcast. I think we're out of here. I think we have gone through the portal. I'm going to ask you one question, Teresa, as we, we get out of here. Now that we have gone through this portal together, what feels more possible in your world? You know, I think uh, one of the things that's always been so important about the social justice work and movement work that I've done over the years is always that sense of being part of a larger we. One of the nice things about the Portal Project, too, is it is expanding our knowledge about who else is out there that's, that's part of the we. And I think, you know, as much as we can connect to all those people out there that we may not know, to know them, right, and to keep building that circle, keep expanding that circle. Because that, that's how we're going to make it happen. That has been one of the central internal themes is when we say we, who is our we? And I think through these conversations, we've been learning a little bit more who our we is. So with that kind of as a prompt, go out and find your we, connect with your people, uh, and keep using this transformative time towards creating the world that we want and need. We're out of here. Much love to the people. Peace out.